Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Remembrance is to say that mood follows action. So when you're butting up against some resistance, like, oh, I don't want to do that thing, or I got to call that guy back, or, you know, I told my buddy I'd meet him to go jogging or whatever it is that like, you don't feel like doing that. You tell yourself, well, I'll do that when I feel better or mm -hmm. tomorrow I'll do that. Understand that mood follows action. The way to change your mental and emotional state is to take the action first, not wait for the emotional state to change and then take the action. All righty, we are la la live. Good morning, afternoon, whenever you guys listen to this. I'm here with Rich Roll. Super excited to have you on here. Yeah, good to be here, man. Thanks for uh, making the trip out here. Yeah, I like the audio versions like a lot better in person, I find, because when I did the video with on Tom's studio, it was like, I had to like make sure it was my first time doing a video interview as well. So I had to like make sure how I looked. The lighting was super hot. Mm -hmm. So this is a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I think in, you know, when I do my podcast, my main, my predominant rule when I go into these interviews is less about the information and more about how can I connect emotionally with mm. the individual? Like that's my goal. Like if I can really connect with them emotionally, then I trust that the information will flow from that. But First and foremost, it's always about the emotional connection. And I'm considering, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, uh, I'm, I'm preparing to build out a proper sort of studio so that I can step into doing more video and filming. Yeah. But my concern with that is that how that will uh, affect the intimacy. You know what I mean? Because once, once you introduce a camera and you put a light up and then there's a self-consciousness that happens and how does that impact the flow and the, that emotional connection that I'm seeking. So it's a tricky true. thing, you know what I mean? It's true. Yeah, it's definitely a different vibe. I mean, nobody knows whether we have a shirt on or not, but let that imagination run wild. Yeah, we're sitting here in our underwear, we're by sitting the way. Here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, thanks for being coming on. I uh, recently heard about you maybe about two, three months ago. I was studying Lewis House's podcast, and now I just found out you've been on Joe Rogan's podcast. You've mm -hmm. been on all these different podcasts, and see all the guests that you guys you're trying to get on as well. So this is really amazing to be here. Cool, man. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to talk to you. So for the people that may not have heard about you yet or know your story, can you give us a bit of a background of, uh, of your story? Yeah, sure. So my name is Rich Roll. I'm 50 years old. I turned 51 in October. Uh, my journey really kind of begins shortly before I turned 40. Uh, at that time, I was a corporate lawyer on the partnership track at a prestigious Los Angeles law firm um, and had kind of invested uh, all of my energy and my aspirations into this idea of the American dream. You know, my whole life was premised on that, like study hard, get into the, you know, I went to a really good prep school for high school and I got into Stanford, Harvard, and Princeton. I did all the right things as a kid and ended up going to Stanford, was a swimmer at Stanford. After that, never really gave too much thought about what sort of got me excited. I just was on this track of like trying to do like leverage that education for the best career possible. So I went to law school. I went to Cornell law school, somehow graduated from there and, you know, got a job in, in the corporate law firm world, worked as a corporate lawyer in San Francisco for a couple of years, came down to Los Angeles doing entertainment law. And, you know, at the, by the time I was 39 years old, there's a whole other side of this story that involves alcoholism and addiction recovery, but that might be a little far afield of this. But, but by the time I was 39 years old, I was, you know, I was uh, seven or eight years sober and really uh, committed to sort of climbing that corporate ladder, right? And, and I'd achieved quite a bit of success. You know, we live in a really nice house. I met my wife. We were building a family. I had a Porsche in the driveway. I had all the trappings of that life that from the outside looking in, you'd be like, this guy made it. This guy is, you know, living the dream, right? But on the inside, I was really kind of dying. I was living a life that was at odds with 
my you know truest self i think and i'd never taken a beat a moment to really reflect and think about like what 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 i wanted for my own life and so i guess i was having a little bit of an existential crisis about about what i was doing with my time and with my career and and that collided with a health scare uh shortly before my 40th birthday because at the time i was a junk food addict i was 50 pounds overweight even though I'd been a, a, an athlete in college, I really had not taken care of myself over the last 10 years. Um, and it all came to a head on a walk up the staircase late one evening where I had to take a break, you know, halfway up a simple flight of stairs. I was winded. I was out of the, out of breath. I had tightness in my chest and, you know, I was sweating. And I thought, this is insane. Like, I felt like I was on the precipice of, of, having a heart attack and heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather, who had also been a champion swimmer, died uh, in his early 50s from a heart attack long before I was ever born. And my mother always said, you got to watch out what you know you eat. You got to be careful. And, you know, when you're young, you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, that was the beginning mm -hmm. of everything that has come to pass since then. Um, it wasn't quick. It wasn't overnight. It wasn't linear. But ultimately, I ended up changing my lifestyle. I adopted a plant-based diet, and that really rejuvenated my health and, and restored my vitality and, and gave me an interest in taking care of myself once again. And I started exercising for the first time in a long time, and one thing led to another. And it wasn't long before I'd lost that 50 pounds, and I felt great. And I was so amazed at how quickly I was able to make some pretty significant changes. And I started thinking a lot about the resiliency of the human body. Like, mm. man, you know, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic for a long time. And then I just ate McDonald's and Jack in the Box, you know, and Taco Bell for the 10 years after that. And in a period of a few months, I really have like achieved a different balance in my life. So what other areas of my life am I overlooking? Where are the other areas of, of, human potential that I've been blind to, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, and professionally. And so I started to set about like trying to uncover those areas. And, and I think at the time I was still struggling with that existential crisis about what I was supposed to do. I was still practicing law, but I was really looking for an exit and something that I could be more passionate about. And as I was wrestling with these questions and, and really um, thinking a lot about this question of human potential, I discovered the world of ultra endurance sports and that seemed to be like a perfect template to not only challenge myself, but really answer these questions for myself to, you know, all this time spent training out with myself. It's almost like a, a, an active meditation. And it gave me that space to really reflect on my life while also challenging myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. And, and I was able to answer a lot of those questions for myself and at the same time do quite well in some crazy races. Uh, in 2008 and 2009, I raced this race called Ultraman, which is a three-day double Ironman race in Hawaii. And in 2009, I was leading that race after the first day and I ended up being sixth and the fastest American, which was insane because I'm just this 43-year-old corporate lawyer. And that was wild. <clears throat> and then after that, I did five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands in under a week. And that was something that no one had ever done before. I did it with a buddy, Jason Lester. And that got a bunch of media attention. How, how can somebody do that? And also, how can somebody do that without eating any animal products on their plate? Like this guy's plant-based, doesn't eat any, he doesn't eat any meat or any dairy, and he was able to do this thing. So a lot of people were interested in that story. Um, and that kind of put me on the map in terms of you know somebody who had something to say. And that led to the book deal. And I wrote this book called Finding Ultra that came out in 2012. And then about uh, six or eight months after that, I started my podcast and the podcast blew up and, you know, I've been doing that ever since. So that was more, more of a long-winded answer to your story. Here. But yeah. yeah, like I never know how to answer that question I know, succinctly. It, it just, and I never know <laughs> when to like... Like, yeah, you know, I was like, you're looking at me it. like, how long, how much longer is he going to go? <laughs> All right, the podcast is over, guys. Thanks so much. Um, that's crazy. 51 years old, right? Almost 51, yeah. Almost 51 years old. And you went through probably two of the worst, I don't know what you would say, diseases, which is like alcoholism and junk food rants. And how did the alcoholism, when did you actually realize that you were an alcoholic? I'm really curious about this because mm -hmm. we have this title in, in America where it's probably a different definition. So I'm coming from South Korea where people are just always drinking and it's yeah, like yeah, a cultural yeah. thing. And you're almost like pure pressure to drink. There's like a hierarchy when someone is a little older, 
you almost want to obey what they're doing right and they don't call it alcoholism it's like a way of life almost and i think a lot of cultures would define it differently for you when you were 31 what was that moment where you thought that you would be classified as a let's say an alcoholic well i it, it to, or to answer that question you know i have to frame it a little bit i mean i I was a good boy in high school, you know, was getting up at four 30 in the morning to go to swim practice every day. I didn't party, but then when I got to college, I kind of went insane. <laughs> that was my sort of introduction to, to alcohol. And were you like a super jockey? No, I wasn't jockey. I was nerdy, you know, and um. I was a kid who always had difficulty making friends. I was the last kid picked for kickball. You know, I had a patch on my eye when I was in elementary school and I had the headgear. You know, I was not a vision for you. You know, I was a very lonely kid who was challenged socially and and kind of an isolator. You know, I was kind of an artistic kid. I was not I was not a jock bro type person at all, but I went to kind of a jock bro high school and that further kind of marginalized me socially. And when I found swimming, that was almost like my first refuse, like when I was refuge like when my head was underwater i just felt i felt safe i felt like i was in my right place um and then when i discovered alcohol i remember very vividly like the first time that i got drunk and it was like the solution to every problem that i never knew that i had i was like oh my god like suddenly how old, how old were you i can i mean 18, 18 you know 18 okay. yeah. you know i can remember being at a party in college and and being able to talk to a girl and crack a joke and like have fun and be relaxed. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, you weren't, I feel you weren't this good with girls time. before. No, not really. I mean, I had a girlfriend for a while in high school, but I was not like, you know, I was terrified of girls, you know, and I was just deeply insecure and, uh, and, and just not well equipped for the world. And I felt like alcohol gave me the fuel to kind of catch up. And it felt great and, you know, it worked for a long time and I had a lot of fun. Like it was a good time until it wasn't, you know, and it, it wasn't long though before it was clear that I was the guy who was always the last one to leave the party or the guy scouring the party for the leftover drinks after the keg was done. You know, the guy who was, who did the stupid thing or passed out in the weird place and got made fun of the next day. And I was comfortable with that for a while. And then it just got darker and darker and darker. You know, like I just, I can, it continued to progress. I lived in New York city after college for a while. And that's like Disneyland for alcoholics. Oh, that's and that's where it really rough. kicked in. That's right. And you know, at the end it was not romantic or fun or cool at all. Like I was a guy who literally would have to start drinking in the morning to make it through the day. So started the, I would start the day with a vodka tonic in the shower and I would hide empties, you know, or I would hide, I would hide drinks and hide empties and lie to everyone, even though everybody knew what was going on. And I knew I was an alcoholic. Like I knew pretty early on that I was an alcoholic. You but, were working in a law firm at this point though, like doing deals. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I could keep it together like during the week and then I would, I would just, I was deeply unhappy as a corporate lawyer though, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't really fully conscious of that. I was like, this is what I'm, I just got to buck it up, you know, and like work harder. And, but at night I would go out and party till like three in the morning to like blow off steam. And I was like, I need that, you know, and then I'd come in just like so hungover and I could will my way through the day. And I, I was competent at what I was doing, but at the end it started to really fray, you know, it started to really fray. I got two DUIs in a row, you know, blowing like 0.23 and 0.2, like big numbers, like way loaded. Uh, and you're a big got guy. Arrested, so you can, facing you can two drink a lot. Yeah. You know, I, my tolerance was super high. It was, it, you know, it was just, it was pathetic at the end. It was pathetic. I almost lost my job. My, I was alienated from my family. They were terrified and really had cut me off and didn't want anything to do with me and, unless I was ready to get sober. And sleeping on a bare mattress on the floor of an unfurnished, crappy apartment. You know, it was just, it was dark. It was sad. It was pathetic. And I knew I needed to get sober, but I kept trying to do it on my own. You know, all the success that I thought that I had had in my life whether it was through school or professionally or through swimming, I felt in my heart of hearts was through my self-will. I was never the smartest kid. I was never the most talented swimmer, but I knew how to work really hard. I knew how to go that extra mile. I knew how to apply my self-will and I'd been rewarded for that. And I felt like if I could do that with respect to this problem, I'll be able to solve it. But all that did was dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I could stay sober for a little while, but I go out and whatever. It was a mess. 
finally the courts got involved and said, you have to go to AA. And so I would go and get my court card checked, but I, I, I wasn't really engaged with what was happening. And so that wasn't working. And then there was a marriage that went south. It was a gigantic chaos. How did chaotic the courts get involved? Is, was well, I had two DUIs and I was facing serious jail time. Um, and, and my lawyer was like, listen, you got to start going to these meetings. We got to be able to demonstrate to the judge that you're trying to, you know, rectify this issue. Um, and it's a long story about how I didn't end up going to jail. It's like this divine, you know, intervention that prevented that from happening. But eventually the wheels just came so far off, off the wagon that I was like, okay, finally I hit like my bottom and I was like, I'm, I'm going to rehab. And I went up to this rehab in Oregon, um, about an hour outside of Portland. And my idea was I was going to be there for maybe 20 days and get back to my job. You know, I was terrified to leave my job and all that kind of stuff. Were you worried that you might get fired? Yeah, I was worried. I was, I was, it was, well, my second DUI was in Beverly Hills at like three in the morning, going the wrong way down a one way street, get pulled over by Beverly Hills <laughs> PD. And they're like, okay, dude, I think I blew a point one, point two one, And I just, I just gotten a DUI previously in West LA, like two months prior. And they arrest me and they confiscate my possessions, right? My wallet and everything like that. And the arresting officer sees my business card. And my boss, the partner that I was doing the most work with, represented the LAPD and all these excess and, and the Beverly Hills PD in all these excessive force cases. So the arresting officer knew my boss and called my boss and said, I picked up one of your boys. And so the following Monday, after spending the weekend in the drunk tank, my boss calls me into his office and he's like, got an interesting phone call over the weekend, not a call I thought I was going to get. And he knew the whole thing. And so my covers were pulled. I was no longer, you know, uh, I was no longer in a situation where, you know, my boss didn't know it was how he, he's like, you got a problem. I'm not going to fire you, but you got to deal with it. You know? And it was me trying to deal with it on my own for a while until I realized it was so unmanageable that I had to go to rehab. And he supported me in doing that, which was great and amazing. Um, but I ended up staying in that rehab for a hundred days, which is, that's a long time to be. What's the average like for most people? 28 days, mm -hmm. you know, 30 days, something like that is, is generally the average. But you know, once I got there and I was like, okay, this is basically a mental institution. Like I'm a smart guy. I went to Stanford. I went to Cornell law school. Like I'm in a mental institution. My best thinking landed me here. So there's something broken, deeply broken and not how, only how I'm behaving, but like how I'm thinking. And I, and I got that, you know, I got that. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, I don't ever want to come back here. So I'm going to do this right. And I started opening up and being honest with these counselors about how I was really living. And when I kind of started telling them some stories about what I was doing, they're like, yeah, we think maybe you ought to stick around a little bit longer. Like Wait, you, you have doing? a case, they were like, you have a case of alcoholism. We typically see in like a 65 year old man who's been drinking his whole life. Like it's bad. And if you don't get this, you're going to die. Like you will die. What were you doing though? That like, what were some of the things we're drinking around the clock, driving like crazy drunk driving, um, you know, just literally drinking all day as like a 30 year old, you know, like, and trying to practice law. Like it was just an unmanageable situation in every, in every respect. My God. So yeah. So rehab saved my life. And once I kind of completed that chapter and made my way back into the world, you know, I was a pretty broken person. Like I just, I burned every bridge. I destroyed every relationship. I had, you know, dismantled trust with everybody that I knew. And so I became very intent on repairing all of that. Like my priority was to, uh, get sober, stay sober and fix my life. And so what that meant for me in certain respects was a level of workaholism. Like I just threw myself back into like, not only like the sobriety part, like repairing my relationships and, and demonstrating that I was somebody who could be trusted, who could show up on time, who wasn't going to lie to them or try to steal from them or anything like that. But to get back to where I was like, cause as a young person, I was somebody who I was like the golden boy. I had all this potential. Everyone was like, you're going to go do great things. And you're I squandered swimmer, all of that. Right? It's in Stanford. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I, I was a world ranked swimmer. I was like the best, wow. one of the best swimmers in my area. I grew up in Washington, DC. I was the number 100 flyer in the entire area. Like I was getting recruited by all these colleges. I had great grades. I got into all these great schools. So this was like, you're going to do amazing things in the world. And then I just blew it all up. Right. And so I was like, I got to fix all this. 
And so I threw myself into my career and just became like a workaholic until that became like an untenable situation, you know, by the time I was 39. And I was medicating myself through my job and also through food. Like I couldn't drink anymore. And I didn't realize consciously how much I was using terrible food, all that fast food to really just modulate and regulate my emotional state. It was a replacement, right? Instead of in certain respects. Yeah. In certain, in certain respects. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think, you know, I do have a food addiction issue. You know, I think I, I, I have in the past used food to alter my emotional state, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the same. That's the same reason you would use a drug or a drink. So is it just that you have an addictive attitude in general? Not just food. I'm, a, I, I'm definitely an addictive personality, for yeah. sure. I'm somebody who's prone to extremes. And that has benefited me in certain respects in my life. And it has also been my ruin, you know. And so it's, it's a tricky thing because if you're not prone to extremes, you're not going to go do five Ironmans on five Hawaiian Islands and, and do something that no one ever did. Like there's, there's, there's greatness packed into that. There's something cool about that that I like about myself. But it's also something that needs to be tempered because that same disposition can wreak havoc and chaos in your life. So for me, it's a constant struggle of how to manage my extreme personality and tendencies and, and, and do it in a, in a healthy way. And are you like that with relationships? Is it like in all aspects of your life that you have more of this addictive? Personality? No, I mean, like, I, I'm not in, like, I don't gamble. Like I don't, you know, I, you know, my, I've been with my wife now, we're coming up on 20 years. So I have a great relationship with her, but I wasn't able to maintain a, a, a real relationship until I got sober. Mm-hmm. I met my wife when I was about a year sober. So yeah, I mean, I have a great marriage and a great family life. So I think, you know, I am more balanced than people might realize. And it's not like I'm some crazy person just flying off the handle on these extreme jaunts, like all the time. I think, you know, like today, before you got here, I've been training like all day, getting ready for this race. So that's kind of an extreme behavior. Like mm-hmm. most people on a weekday wouldn't be training from like 8 a.m. to like 2. Would you be like run <laughs> so, up on hills or something like that? It was a crazy swim, run, swim, run, oh, swim, run, yeah. swim, run workout. Like that's not necessarily normal, nor is it sustainable. So on a day-to-day basis, if you microscope down onto my life, uh, you know, it might look a little bit, a little bit out of balance. But if you telescope out and you get, you widen the grain on it, I think it is pretty balanced. Like I'm going to go do this crazy race in a couple of weeks, but then, you know, I'm working on a book and I travel with my family and I do, you know, it's like if the important things in your life, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, all these sort of things are not in check, then none of the other stuff matters. So I'm very conscious of that. And the tools that I've learned and that I practice uh, as a result of my experience in sobriety, like really give me the the wherewithal to be able to make sure that I tend to the most important things in that way. I mean, one of the things I noticed about you is you've got this great, it's not, I don't know if it's work-life balance, but you've got it integrated where your children are traveling with you, your children are musicians Mm -hmm. and they're coming in, you write with your wife, which Mm -hmm. is something that I haven't heard too often. So that's interesting. I'd love to dig more about that. But you found this balance now where you can do all the things you want, but also have that family time. So that's something really unique that I haven't uh, seen too often, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the wake of, of that existential crisis that I had, I started to think about, like, what would it mean and what would it look like if what you actually choose to do, like, you know, in the best case scenario, if you could do anything, like, what would you like to do? How would your life look if that, that um, demarcation line between work and just play started to blur? you know, and I started moving in that direction and, you know, it was very difficult and there was financial sacrifices and all kinds of, uh, challenges along the way. But now we're in a place, you know, many years later where I really am blessed to be able to, to live my life in that way. Like I train for these races, I get to write books on my own and with my wife, we do these retreats together as a family. Um, and these are things that I would do for free, you know, like, and I get to, and my podcast as well. Like it's such a joy. Yeah, you know, same it's here. Like, it's amazing. The podcast is the greatest scam in the world. Like it gives you this excuse to call people Shh, you're super into. Yeah, this yeah is like let's not tell and the like world hold them this. hostage so you can ask them a bunch of questions and and then you get to share that yeah. with the world. Like it's a oh, gift. Man, I love and the it. fact that I've been able it. to you know create something now that that is able to sustain my family. It's just it's I, I mean I can't. I'm so grateful. It's crazy. So you were 39, right? And you had this. It wasn't a heart attack. It was no close to it though. 
yeah, it was it was tightness. I don't want to overstate that. It was it was it was a scare. You know, it was like it, tightness yeah. in my chest, sweat on my brow. I was like, I'm not living well. You know, mm. like I need to change how I'm living. Interesting. And then you made this dramatic shift in your health. And take us to how you got into plants. It was uh, it was really self experimentation. Um, this is going back to 2006, 2007. Um, certainly there were plenty of diet books and documentaries and resources available, but it sort of predated the more mainstreaming of plant-based diet that you see now. Um, so it wasn't a result of reading a book or watching a documentary. It was really like, I want to find a way. Well, the, the way it really worked was in the wake of that scare, the first thing I did was I told my wife, my wife, first of all, Julie has always been the healthier person in our relationship equation. Like she wasn't totally vegan at the time, but she was eating really clean and very healthy into yoga, meditation, always trying to improve herself. But that was always like her thing, you know, like I'm the, you know, logic minded, pragmatic career guy. At least that's how I conceptualize myself. Um, and Julie would once in a while, like do these multi-day cleanses, like juice cleanses. And that was like, there's no way I'm going like, to do you anything like that. Yourself? Like, are, yeah, are you crazy? Yeah, what are you doing? But after this scare, I went to her and I was like, hey, you know that uh, cleanse thing that you kind of do once in a while? Like, I think I might want to try that. I feel like, she was like your really? voice just went a little high. Yeah, like, you're, like, you're a little bit nervous. Sheepish, like, yeah, like she's like, okay. Uh, she didn't believe me. Like, I was like, I need you to get me that stuff. Like, help me do this. She's like, okay, I guess. And then she didn't do anything. <laughs> she, I think she thought like I was like, it was a phase or something like that. And I had to keep asking her. So that was the first thing I did. I did a seven day, basically like a vegetable juice kind of like detox cleanse thing. Um, and I didn't do it because I was convinced that I had toxins that needed to be removed. Like I was like, this is all nonsense. I don't necessarily believe in anything, anything like all of the sort of ideas around it, but it was, it was a way to like wipe the slate clean. It was almost like, detox for food. Like I went to, I went to rehab for drugs and alcohol. Like this is this seven day thing will kind of be like detoxing off all this terrible food that I have, whatever, you know, definition of detox you want to give to that. I needed to do that in an extreme way almost like reboot my operating system. And the first, it was like terrible for two days. It was awful. I was like lying on the couch. I had no energy. I felt awful. It was just, you know, it was a, not a fun thing. But by the, Yes. You're sweating like crazy. Yes, right? sweating yeah. and like just, oh, yeah, the worst. it was bad. Yeah, been there. Um, but then three, four, five days into it, I started to like feel good. I was like, wow. I mean, I'd never gone a single day in my whole life without eating solid food. And here I was on like day five, just drinking these juices and these teas. And I suddenly felt like great. And I was like, almost like this mental fog lifted. Um, I wasn't sleeping that well because of this, but I didn't feel like I needed that much sleep. And my energy levels started to like return in a way that I hadn't experienced since I was like a teenager. It was pretty dramatic. Mm. And I don't know physiologically what was going on. All I know is that it kind of flicked a switch in me where I was like, wow, I cannot believe in just seven days of doing this, I could feel so different from my baseline that I had gotten used to for so long that I just acclimated to. Like I didn't realize how lousy I felt until I felt good. And then I wanted to find a way of eating that would allow me to feel that good all the time. And so I played around with a bunch of different diets and I kind of half-assed it. I didn't, you know, I tried a vegetarian diet, but that kind of like devolved into a junk food. But, you know, it's like, oh, I'll just keep the pepperoni off the Pizza Hut pizza and that's vegetarian. Yeah, like that's that healthy, counts, right? right? Like yeah, I was yeah. just playing mental games with my own denial mechanism and wasn't getting much success, wasn't losing any weight. Energy levels went down again. And, you know, there I was back on the couch, just fatter and lazier than ever. And really had a moment where I was like, ready to give up and thinking, well, I, I'm 40. Maybe you just feel lousy. You know, maybe I can be okay with that. I guess that's just the way it is. And really reflected on, um, it brought me back like that moment kind of brought me back to thinking about my grandfather who much like me had been a champion swimmer and was never overweight, never smoked and, and still died of heart disease at 54. Wow. And he wasn't, eating McDonald's and Jack in the box because that didn't even exist then. Like we're talking the 1940s and stuff like that. Actually, there's a little picture of him right there. You can see wow, he's a boss. Um, and I realized very clearly that 
if I couldn't figure this out, that, you know, that was my destiny and it was probably going to come up on me a lot sooner than it did for him. Uh, so I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I stopped playing all these games and let, let's try a crazy experiment. What if I got rid of, I already got rid of meat. It didn't seem actually that hard. I didn't feel that different. And I realized that I didn't really crave it anyway. Like it wasn't any, it's just something I'd been eating my whole life. But what if I got rid of dairy also, got rid of eggs, got rid of fish, got rid of all this processed crap that I was eating. I wonder if that would make a difference. And I'll try that. And I thought, you know, I was almost like, I didn't, I didn't think that it would make a difference. I almost didn't want it to. Cause I, uh, my, my thinking going into that was this is so crazy and extreme. I'm going to do this. It's not going to work. And then I can say I did everything. And then I'm just going to go back and eat Jack in the box and just say, well, I tried, you know, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. But I went into that and I did it, you know, I, I, I gave it my best. And within seven to 10 days of literally eating nothing but plants, like plants close to their natural state, I felt like I did on the latter days of that juice cleanse. I felt like this resurgence of vitality and this clarity of thought and, you know, all of these amazing, um, benefits that I did not anticipate. It just blew my mind. So and nobody and, pointed you towards this plant-based. No, it was just something it, yeah, it wasn't like, Oh, about. I read this thing or this yeah. guy's doing it, or I'm following this protocol. It was literally just self-experimentation. Um, and it just agreed with me, you know, mm -hmm. that's all I can tell you. And, and I thought, wow, there's something to this. Like now I'm going to try to learn, like, let me see what books I can read and figure out what's really going on here because this is impacting me in a way that I did not expect. Was and it so, as big? Back in the day, like were there other authors talking about <clears throat> plant-based diets and stuff like that, or it was just about to start. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. there's plenty of, there's always been it's books always out there on this kind yeah. of stuff. So it's not like it suddenly got invented. It's been around for a long time. Um, but it hadn't hit like that, that sort of, um, tipping point where it became a mainstream discussion. It was still relatively, uh, on the fringes, but mm -hmm. interestingly, when I was a kid, I used to swim against this guy called Rip Esselstyn and Rip and I, we'd swam at meets against each other. We didn't really know each other. And he went to Texas and I went to Stanford and we would, our colleges would swim against each other. He swam backstroke and he was really quite good swimmer. Um, and I had connected with him on Facebook because I just would follow all these old college swimmers and stay in touch with them. And I, and I noticed one day on his Facebook feed that he was finishing up this book called the engine two diet. And it was all about uh, eating plant-based. And he had been a professional triathlete. He'd, he'd been the fastest swimmer in Ironman. Like, he'd done a lot. And I didn't even know that he was plant-based, nor that he was writing this book, nor that he was the son of this legendary doctor, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, who had been treating patients at the Cleveland Clinic with a plant-based diet dating back to the 70s and had been able to not only prevent heart disease, but actually reverse it. What do you mean reverse? Like... Essentially, if you he's he's got a book. It's called Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, and mm -hmm. he he would take these patients who would come in, who were on the precipice of having heart attacks. He'd do angiograms, and you could see these clogged arteries very clearly in these scans. And he would put them on a whole food, plant based diet for three months, six months, nine months. Monitor them, do all their blood work, and then do uh, do angiograms all along the way. And you can actually see these arteries starting to clear up as a result of that without surgery. It's absolutely astonishing. And when I saw that and I was like, I actually know this guy rip. And I, I reached out to him. I was like, Hey, I didn't even know you were doing this. Like I just tried this. And he was like my first kind of like lifeline, um, as a resource. And because he was an athlete and we had participated in the same sport and had like this, not really a history or friendship, but yeah. enough of a connection. Um, I grabbed onto that. This and is on Facebook, right? This was on, this started on Facebook. Did they yeah. even have messenger back then? You're like writing on his wall. Hey, man. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. I think I commented on something, or I sent him a message on Facebook, mm -hmm. and and then he's like, "Oh, that's awesome!" And and he sent me uh, an advanced copy of his book, and that book went on to become a New York Times bestseller, mm -hmm. and and that really was the first of kind of the first book in the mainstreaming of this movement. You know, mm -hmm. now it's like people are talking about it all the time, but and and Rip's father, Doctor Russellston you know, I don't know. I can't remember when his book had come out, but I think it probably had come out some years prior to that. And, and like I said, he'd been doing this since the seventies. So, you know, it was like, but people weren't talking about it. It wasn't out in the, it wasn't like part of the public discourse at that time. Yeah. I did this Vipassana meditation retreat mm. about three, four years ago in Hawaii. And it's, have you heard of it? Vipassana? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was like a 10 day selling meditation trip and it was in the big islands and never like yourself never have i just eaten like just plants or vegetables uh -huh. 
It where, was, on the it big, was, where on the Big Island was it? Oh man, I forgot. Was it see. down in that on the Red Road? It it might have been. Like all I remember is we got into the airport. They took us into this white van. Didn't know anyone, uh-huh. and we just drove up for like thirty minutes or so. And it was in a rainforest. Oh cool. So you get there, and I forgot my tent and all that stuff. So I had to sleep in like an extra small tent this whole time. And the immediately as soon as you get in, you can't talk to anyone. So right. I was just like in a different world at that state, including. A completely vegetarian diet. It wasn't plant based mm-hmm. for sure, but going back to your energy levels, it was insane how I never done this right because I come from like an Asian family. It was insane how you can feel like the brain fog coming out of your brain, and you just have all this energy. No coffee, no tea, nothing like that. And I was sleeping four hours a, a day. Keep in mind, I was also meditating, right? But I just felt so clear. And then I got back home after this experience. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll try this whole thing. I'll try meditating. Didn't work. It <laughs> didn't stick. Didn't stick. Like, as you probably know, most people can't just do these, you know, meditation things after a while. But the hardest part for me was being able to create recipes and being able to actually cook this at home, especially when I was like super young. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the obstacles that you found when you're recommending this plant-based diet? information is there Mm -hmm. what are the obstacles that you found for people trying to really adopt this into their diet doesn't have to be plant-based but any Mm -hmm. sort of healthy diet and what's worked for you yeah i mean i think well it's a there's a lot packed into that question um i think you know anytime you're trying to kind of uh encourage somebody to uh get out of their comfort zone and try something new there's going to be a resistance or fear around that and when you talk about eating a plant-based diet, like food is very emotional, you know, it's very emotional. Um, your food choices and how, you know, your social circle reacts to that, I think are big factors in whether people can uh, not just make a change, but make it stick. Um, there's a lot of confusing uh, information out there about nutrition. You know, the, the, the diet wars just rage on and on and on, and they're so heated. Uh, and I think that, you're asking somebody to let go of everything they've ever thought was true. Like my whole life I was taught beef is what's for dinner and milk does a body good. And, you know, my experience has taught me that, uh, I do better without the very foods I've been told my whole life. I need to be healthy. And especially are critical if you want to, if you want to be competitive as an athlete, you know? And so I, I let my experience dictate my, you know, how I would proceed with it. Um, but I think it's terrifying for a lot of people. And I think you have, in order to really catalyze that shift, first of all, the person has to be willing. They have to really, they have to, they have to want to change and they have to be willing to do, uh, do some work and get uncomfortable. And not everybody is in that position. And secondly, you have to make the healthy choice, the convenient choice and the affordable choice. So there's this perception that eating plant-based is very elitist and that stereotype exists because of high-end markets that charge a lot of money for fancy, you know, superfoods and spirulinas and, you know, moringa powder and all this kind of stuff. And I think people conflate that with eating plant-based, but eating plant-based is really, it's peasant food. It's like rice and beans and quinoa. It's like, you know, it's produce. It's very, very basic. It's plant foods close to their natural state, foods that you find on the far aisles of the grocery store. Um, But getting people into that understanding can be a little bit of a leap of faith. And so the work that I do, like I have all these doctors on the podcast that talk about the health implications of eating plants, et cetera. I try to provide this free, open education resource. We write cookbooks on the subject to provide all the recipes. Uh, and it's interesting because even in doing all of that, I still get, and in finding ultra, I've got 50 pages of appendices. This is exactly what I eat. This is how I do it. This is how I train. This is what I eat in the morning, you know, and, and still questions like, yeah, but how do I get started? And it's like, I what else do I have to, you know, like, well, maybe you don't want to make that change or Mm -hmm. maybe I have to make it just a little bit easier for you. So we just launched this new product called the plant power meal planner. It's an incredibly robust, um, online resource that not only gives, uh, members access to thousands and thousands of plant-based recipes, but it's all customized for your, your preferences, your allergies, uh, your time constraints, your budget, and it creates grocery lists and it even has meal delivery or not meal delivery, grocery delivery in 22 cities. So it's like, you don't have to do anything. Like mm-hmm. here it is. 
they'll actually deliver your groceries and here's the recipe. Like I couldn't like short of me being in your kitchen and making it for you. Like this is as much as I can do. And it's only like a dollar 90 a week. So I'm really proud of that because I really think that that is going to help people, uh, um, make the shift because it's so convenient. And yeah. I think convenience is everything. Like if it's difficult or it's expensive, um, or you're surrounded by a social circle that is not welcoming, then it's challenging. Yeah. I mean, you definitely made it easier and convenient with the process that you've created and we'll get back into that. But do you think people just don't know the benefits, like the real hardcore benefits of eating a plant-based diet? Do you think that's part of the reason? Yeah, certainly there's plenty of education that still needs to happen on that front. And there's all kinds of interesting documentaries that are always coming out about that. Um, I think most people just eat mindlessly. They're just, Mm. they're eating to, you know, they're just eating whatever's in front of them. And I think it's the rare individual that actually stops and pauses and say, wait, why am I eating this? What is in this? Where did it come from? And it's no, it's not necessarily anybody's fault. Like we live in a culture and a society that has gone to great lengths to prevent us from being connected to where our foods come from. And the whole system is set up so that we don't know. And there's actually laws on the books that prevent us from knowing all these ag gag laws that prevent us from photographing what goes on in a slaughterhouse or a dairy, you know, a dairy farm. Um, There's powerful, you know, powerful corporate interests at play that have a vested interest in making sure that we don't see how, you know, how, how the uh, sausage is made, so to speak, because people are compassionate. And if they saw it, they would be like, wow, is this, this is what I'm eating. This is what's actually really going on here. Like that's kind of not, I'm not, I don't know if I'm cool with that. Yeah. I mean, you're going against billions of dollars from Coca-Cola, not just like the slaughterhouse, but you're talking about, you know, soft drinks, talking about fast food chains. It's like billions or trillions of dollars, Mm -hmm. I guess, of advertising that you're going against. Um, so, I mean, what, what are the real benefits, like the top three core benefits of eating a plant-based diet? And I know you mentioned, you know, unclogging the heart, which is like one of the most common ways to die essentially. But what are some of the ones that really get people excited? Yeah. I mean, right now, you know, we're this incredibly prosperous country, but we've never been more sick as a society. One out of every three Americans will die of heart disease. Like something like 50% of Americans are obese or overweight, uh, over 30% of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic. Like these chronic lifestyle illnesses are really the epidemics of our, of our age, of our time. And the thing that's kind of just so um, disheartening and, and shocking about it is that they're preventable and they're often reversible if you just start making some pretty simple diet and lifestyle alterations. So eating plant-based, uh, you know, look, if you read, Dr. Russellston's book, it's pretty black and white. Like you can reverse heart disease. That is unbelievable. Most people don't realize that. Now it's a pretty stringent protocol, plant-based protocol, but it can be done. You do not have to become a statistic. Like everyone's like, well, uh, it's just, it's, it's genetic, you know, it's in my genes, but genetics are a factor. Um, genetics load the gun, but how you live your life pulls the trigger. So eating plant-based certainly uh, can help prevent heart disease. There's all this new science coming out about how it can uh, prevent and in certain cases even reverse type 2 diabetes. There's a doctor called Dr. Neil Bernard at PCRM.org, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, who's mm-hmm. at the vanguard of, of, that, um, of that science. Super interesting what's happening there. Certainly obesity, all these things. Like, you know, if you're, if you're eating plants close to their natural state, you're not going to get obese. Uh, so on the health front, you know, it checks the box, avoid chronic lifestyle illness. And, you know, I'm a, if, if I stand for anything, it's like, you can be an athlete, you can go out and kill it and do whatever you achieve, whatever dream you, you want, you have for yourself as an athlete on a plant-based diet. I'm living testimony to that. Secondarily, uh, in addition to this crazy health crisis that we're in, we're in an insane environmental crisis, Mm. you know, the biggest mass species extinction event since the dinosaurs, uh, you know, our system for feeding the planet, industrialized animal agriculture, factory farming, just polluting our planet and, and, and utilizing all of its resources in a really irresponsible and non-sustainable way. You know, it's creating these algal blooms in the ocean, acidifying our oceans, polluting our water tables, uh, 
animal agriculture contributes more greenhouse gas emissions than all transportation combined. Like it goes on and on and on. The, the, the reaping of the rainforest, like, you know, it's something like a football field every second is cleared for grazing and, uh, and, and growing crops for feed for animals, yeah. so all to raise these animals to eat, which are like this middleman. Like, so eating plant-based is going lower on the food chain. And if you eat plant-based, you're opting out of this system that is causing so much damage to our planet. So there's that, which is amazing. And then thirdly, um, you don't have to participate in this system of factory farming that is cruelly torturing all of these animals, you know, that are suffering horribly that I think if most people could actually see and, and witness that they would be profoundly impacted by. Now, when I began, I just didn't want to be fat. Like I was just sick of being like, that's all I cared about, you know, like, so my sensibility around the environment and, and you know, how we're caring for these sentient animals that came later, you know, that was not on my radar at all. And I did not expect to care about those things, but now that's become really important to me. And when I, so when I look at it from a global perspective, it checks all the boxes, healthy, healthy, super healthy diet, great for the environment, better for the environment. And, uh, and you avoid having to, you know, participate in this system that's cruelly treating these, these beings. Yeah. I think for the people listening, unfortunately, there's not a lot of visual effects out there, right? Cause there's, I didn't even know there was logs around it. And I think that's why people don't, not that they they don't care. It's just, I don't think it's going to what, it's going to be the, it's not going to be the thing that's going to really push them over the edge. But your point about, you know, losing weight and it, it is just, a health, I didn't even know rice was actually a part of the plant-based diet. Is that mm-hmm. true? Yeah. I, even though there's I, a carbohydrates and stuff. That's yeah, not, I don't eat a low carb diet. Uh, yeah. Interesting. I, I do not eat a low carb diet. So we, we had David Asprey on last, uh, last week and he's obviously all about ketosis and biohacking mm-hmm. and you know, all that stuff. What are your guys' thoughts? Like what's the industry versus not versus, but like what are, what are the kind of schools of thoughts around there and what's the difference? Well, again, it goes back to this very loaded emotional discussion about what the best diet is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of heated debate around this and I'm not sure that there's any resolution. Like I do what I do because it agrees with me and I love it and I've been doing it 10 years and, if I woke up one day and I, I didn't feel good or I was putting on weight or I was lethargic or I was depressed, like I would have to objectively look at what I was doing and consider making some changes. Now that hasn't happened. Um, I'm certainly, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a scientist. I don't play one on the internet or on podcasts, but you have doctors and I'm on. not, yeah, I have doctors so on and, I, and I'm not an, I'm certainly no expert in ketosis. Um, I think what's happening in the science of ketosis is interesting I just I listened to Dom D'Agostino on Joe Rogan's podcast recently, and I thought he made some very interesting uh, claims about the impact of of a ketosis diet on uh, on certain diseases. And I think that's worth researching, and I think it's worth investing in what that looks like. My takeaway from it is it sounds like a lot of work. You know, people are making spreadsheets and they're counting their macros and Dom's like, you got to get this app and people are taking exogenous ketones and um, it sounds exhausting. Like to me, that doesn't sound sustainable as a lifestyle. And it seems like my impression is that people do it for a while then they stop then they do it again. It's a periodic on off kind of thing. But it's not like, okay, this is my lifestyle now. I'm living the ketosis lifestyle. Maybe there are people out there that are doing that. I don't know. And so I'm not... I'm not, you know, here to disparage that and I have no direct personal experience with doing it. So I don't want to speak out of school on it, but it did sound like it was people say, well, oh man, you're eating plant-based. Like that sounds so restrictive. And so, um, like it's going to be really difficult. And then I hear these guys talking about eating, eating a ketosis diet. And I was like, that sounds like 10 times the amount of work. So, uh, so that being said, you know, to the extent that reducing the uh or eliminating the the sugars the glycogen from your diet uh to the extent that that can have a positive impact on 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 cancer cell growth like yeah that's interesting you know i think that that should be there should be continuing ongoing research on that and it's valid Uh, at the same time as an athlete and as somebody who's just trying to live my life like i Again, I, I don't think that that would be sustainable for me. Um, and like I said, I eat plenty of carbs in my diet and I'm training harder than almost anybody, you know, who is out there, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm pushing my body to great lengths and, and I need, I, you know, it's like, I eat fats in my diet for, for, um, 
to fuel my workouts, but I also need glycogen. I also need sugars for that too. Now I don't eat processed sugars, but I eat tons of fruit and I eat, uh, and I eat whole grains. I eat rice, I eat quinoa and things like that. Um, the other thing I think is what was interesting in that, that discussion between Dom, who's like, he's sort of a cutting edge leading expert in ketosis diet. When he was talking to Joe Rogan, they talked for three hours and not once in the context of that conversation was the what was the issue of heart disease raised now when you consider that one out of every two is going to suffer from some form of arthrosclerosis and one out of every three americans is going to die from that that seems to be the thing that we should be talking about the most and i think i think it's unclear the extent to which saturated fat intake on the diet impacts um serum cholesterol like there's this idea like oh saturated fat is your new best friend butter is back uh, it has no impact on dietary cholesterol. Knock yourself out. It's great. I'm not convinced that the science is in on that. And I, and based on the doctors that I've had on my podcast, and I've had a litany of them, um, dietary saturated fat uh, is not a health food. And I think there is still some science to substantiate that eating a diet high in saturated fat is going to impact arterial health. Yeah, I mean, it seems like your message is not necessarily trying to favor one or one diet for another you're and correct me if i'm wrong your message is just you're eating like shit right now like you're at a different place you're, you don't even have a difference between one diet or another you're eating junk food or you're not at this place and you're recommending that people make this lifestyle change not necessarily converting sounds like a religion not necessarily converting from one diet to another that's not really what you're trying to do right no, I mean, I, I'm living my life, you know, and, and I'm kind of fatigued of the diet wars and it's sort yeah. of like politics. Like you're not going to win that, that war. You know what I mean? So I just, my whole thing is, this is what I do. If you're interested, come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, and, and, and I try to set myself up as an example, like I'm going to eat 100% plant-based and then I'm going to go off and I'm going to do these crazy races in my forties and my fifties that most people, you know, can't imagine doing, mm. uh, so that, the average person out there can look at it and go, wow, like he did all that and he's doing that. Like I can meet him halfway, you know? And I think irrespective yeah. of whatever your dietary proclivities or your perspective on the optimal diet is, there is no argument that eating a proliferation of plants or being plant-based in the sense of, of the majority of the foods you're eating being plants close to their natural state, that's a good idea, right? Yeah. I'm going to do it 100%. You want to do it 70%, you want to do it 50%, that's fine. But getting into the trenches and like arguing about the minutia of the diet plays into um, this, this, uh, this sort of, how do I couch this? It's a, it's a play out of the rule book that was initiated by the tobacco industry, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. This idea that that uh, doubt is our product, right? There's a book about the or is it a documentary, yeah, called Merchants of Doubt. Essentially, if you can inject any doubt into the mind of the average American, that's enough to keep people rooted in their habits. So, when you engage in all these dietary wars like keto, low carb, diet, you know, plant based, whatever, the average consumer just hears a bunch of noise and they're like, "Well, these guys don't know what they're talking. Nobody knows what's going on, so I'm just going to keep eating the way that I'm eating." Mm. You know, it's like paralysis. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going paralysis. to McDonald's. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. well, they, you know, should I go keto? Should I go plant based? Well, they don't know, so I'm just going to keep eating Pizza Hut. You know, it's like that's not the solution either. Mm. You know what I mean? So, to the extent that I can encourage and 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 provide a helpful hand and a welcome mat for people to explore healthier eating, that's what I'm about. Yeah, how you define that is up to you. And I think that there are there are problems within the movement in terms of messaging. You know, there's all this shaming, and if you don't do it perfect, you're a bad vegan, or and all that kind of stuff. Like, all I want to do is like fan the positive flames with people and everything that I do, all the messaging that I put out kind of revolves around that. Yeah. These diet wars are really just about going from 90%. Like you're already set on being healthy. You're just trying to like figure out what's the most healthy. And for me, at least I live by like the Pareto's law, like the 80, 20 rule where you're trying to just figure out what's the smallest amount of work you can do to get the maximum amount of results and applying that to all your life. I think a lot of people listening, like, the goal isn't to try to convert you or do anything like that or saying one's better than the other. You got to do your own research. You got to figure out what works for you personally, being self-aware of your 
lifestyle and what you care about and what type of foods you grew up with and just being able to live a healthier lifestyle. That's really the message, right? That's really the personal goal. responsibility. You yeah. know, you have to take personal responsibility for yourself. So do your own research, do what works for you, you yeah. know, own that though, you know, own mm. that for yourself and understand that, you know, for me, the other thing too, is that diet's just the beginning. Like I cleaned mm. up my diet and I eat plants so that I could have this clean burning vessel and have the energy to then go do other things in the world. Like I want to evolve past this. Mm. Like I'm interested in, you know, mindfulness and spiritual growth and all these other things that I only became interested in because I cleaned up the vessel, right? So it starts with what you put on your plate. That's a very profound choice. Stage one. But if the inquiry remains there and you're just stuck in arguing about like which kind of kale you should get or should it be this or should it be that for me, like, I feel like you're missing the bigger picture. Like I've cleaned up my diet. Happy to talk to you about it if you want, you know, uh, but let's talk about like what that can do for you outside, you know, when you're done eating, yeah. where are you going to take that energy and how are you going to exploit that to be the best, most authentic version of yourself and express yourself in a way that, that gilds your life with meaning and purpose. Yeah. I mean, for, for all the entrepreneurs that are listening that are like tech focused, it's kind of like choosing what button your website should be, whether it's going to be red or blue rather than just get the freaking website up and then work on getting it out there. You know, there's another mm. stage. Or what to... is the fundamental problem you're trying to solve with the business that you've created? Right. It's so immune. So, I mean, now you're doing ultra endurance. You've got one coming up. What's it called again? The one in Sweden? It's uh, it's called Otillo. It's O-T-I-L-L-O. Otillo. Yeah, Americans would say Otillo. <laughs> I think the Swedish pronunciation, and I'm constantly butchering this, but I think it's something like Otillo. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. What's your nationality? My nationality? Yeah. It's German, Dutch. German, Dutch. You know, I grew up in the United States. My parents did. We're not. Yeah. That's where the discipline and like kind of the addictive personality. I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. Who knows? That's a genetic thing, I guess. So one of the things that I've noticed about you, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, is you mentioned social circle is so important for living a healthier lifestyle and diet and all that. I still struggle with this. Now I'm back at home for a month living with, you know, my, home, my family's visiting from Korea and their whole analogy is instead of an apple a day, you would eat a bowl of rice a day or you would eat, you know, essentially a lot of uh, traditional Korean foods, which have a lot of MSG and all that stuff. And, it's really hard to convince people I find that are really close to your circle, but you seem to have done it really well with your family. And I know your wife was kind of the first one to get you into that, but what are some of your tips or recommendations for getting people that are in your inner circle, whether it's friends, coworkers, family members, partners to adopt the healthy life, assuming you're already there, how do you kind of help people get on that path? What's an easy way? Well, I think, first of all, you have to understand that the premise is a little bit flawed. Like if you're going into a social circle and saying, okay, how am I going to convert all these people to see the world the way I see it? That's probably not going to go yeah, so yeah, well. Yeah. That's you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Whether it's politics or whether it's food or whatever it is. And food choice being so personal and in your case, like deeply rooted in, in culture, right? Yeah. So you're not going to go to your Korean family and get them to stop eating what they're eating and eating the way that you do. No like way. that you, yeah. you're going to exhaust yourself and, and, and ultimately end up frustrated and fracturing your relationship with your family. If that's your approach. Yeah. So my suggestion is find what works for you. Feel good about that and, and create a healthy boundary around it. Like mm. it's your life, you know, it's nobody else's business, what you put inside your body. Right. And it's not personal. So it's, so you can have the conversation like, mom, I know, you know, it's important to you. Like, this is a gesture of love. Like mm -hmm. when you give me this rice and this kimchi or whatever it is or, you know, whatever it is she wants you to eat that you don't want to eat. Um, she's saying, I love you. Mm -hmm. And when you say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. You're saying to her, she's hearing you don't love me she's been or you, you're before. disrespecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So oh, yeah. you have to find a new framework to communicate. So I would approach her and say, look, this is really important to me and, and deflate it. Like, don't make it a big deal. Like I'm trying this thing. I love you so much, mom, you know, and I appreciate everything you do for me, but I just allow me this space to like, do this. Don't get into trying to convert her. She doesn't have to understand it. 
It's not important. Mm -hmm. What's important is that you can establish a dynamic in which fidelity to what's important to you can be protected. Yeah. And ultimately over time, people will adapt to that. They'll, it's like, Oh, he's the guy who eats that thing. Like in the break room, you know, instead of, and if people are giving you shit or whatever, like that's their own insecurity or their own curiosity framed coming out sideways. Um, but just stay true to who you are. You know, I think it's more a reflection of how you feel about yourself because if you're willing to, uh, you know, sort of crater to social pressure, well, they want me to eat this, so I'm going to eat it. Then what does that say about how you feel about yourself and yeah. how important your own um, sort of boundaries are? So I think that's, the, it's an inside job. It's as much psychology as anything else. And I think for somebody who ends up making a change in a positive way and over time they end up looking better or feeling better or their social interactions are better because they're, they've cleaned their vessel up. You know, that person who used to give them shit is going to, is going to find them in a quiet moment and go, Hey, tell me what you did. So it's more about being the lighthouse mm. than it is about trying to, uh, recruit. And that's kind of the message you put out. You're not trying to, again, you're not trying to like, you're doing your own thing. You're, getting the information out there. You're running ultra endurance races and people are going to look at you as a light and be like, how the hell is he doing this at 51 years old? Almost 51, sorry. And that's really what's going to be setting the example. And that's what's going to really convert people. It's not going to be telling people and trying to sell people or manipulate all that stuff. So I really like that. Um, so I guess like final questions what are some of the challenges that you're going through now? I mean, you're, you've obviously, you're deep into the plant-based world. You're running ultra endurance races. What are some of the obstacles that you're facing with your health or nutrition or lifestyle? I think the biggest, um, sort of challenge, I don't know if it's a challenge, but the thing that I'm kind of wrestling with right now is, is this idea of balance and what does balance mean to me? Um, and, and kind of, tackling or deconstructing the conventional wisdom that surrounds this idea of balance, like eat a balanced diet and you should live a balanced day. Like everything should be in perfect proportion to each other every single day or every hour throughout the day. And you're like the opposite of that. Yeah. Too. Well, for that's many years I was like, that's not me, but I was trying to, I was like, I need to be more balanced. I need to be more yeah. balanced. And I've recently come to a place now where I'm like, no, my, my definition of balance is different. And I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with that. Like, if you want to do something great, you're going to have to get out of balance, like no greatness, whether it's a business, a startup, um, an athletic endeavor, writing a book, raising a child, all of these things require you to be out of balance. They require an unbelievable amount of focus and attention and presence in order to do something that is extraordinary. And I think there's beauty in that. And I know that when I invest myself on that level in some pursuit, that's when I feel alive. Mm. And I don't want to be in a place where I'm like feeling bad about that. You know what I mean? I think that's wrong. So, so I think to answer your question, I'm challenging traditional notions of balance and how that plays into my life. At the same time, you know, I have, my problems are quality problems. Like I, I have, I'm spinning a lot of plates right now. So my biggest challenge is trying to figure out how to, how to, how to, you know, like, I don't want to use the word balance, but like, how do I apportion my attention across the spectrum of all the things that I'm doing? Like, yeah. I love the podcast. I've, I'm starting to do more and more episodes. I want to build this video studio for it. Um, I'm finishing up a second edition of Finding Ultra that's due very soon. I'm working on a new book. We do these retreats overseas. I travel for public speaking. Um, what else am I doing? Like, I got a whole bunch of stuff going on and I'm raising kids, you know, and I'm married. Like, I want to be a good husband and I want to be a good parent and I want my podcast to kick ass and I want this new book to be unbelievable. Like I want to excel on all of those levels. So how do I, um, structure my life that to create, to set myself up for success across the board and, and trying to figure out the, the chemistry behind that, I think is my biggest challenge. How are you doing that? What are your plans to at least try to do that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I have to create chapters like right now I have two weeks before this big race. So it's been all about training yeah. and also, and doing the podcast when this race is over, I'll still continue to train, but I can deescalate that. And it's going to be all about writing a book while maintaining the podcast. And meanwhile, there's always room, you know, carved out for, for kids and family and all of that. 
and sobriety and all these other things that I'm doing. Um, but I think it's about like dimming, you know, where are you, where's the spotlight white hot and where can it be dimmed down, mm. you know, and then constantly like playing with those dials. Yeah. You're, you, you have to find balance because you can't do everything at once. Some of that is going to be behind, maybe a little bit behind, or it's not going to be focusing your attention too much. Yeah. And I think at the same time, also, because I'm 51, I feel a sense of urgency um, that perhaps somebody well, you know, when you're young, you're impetuous and you want it all right away. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think because I didn't really find my calling until I was, you know, in my early forties and now I finally have some stride and I have some momentum that I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm capitalizing on that and, and taking full advantage of the opportunities that are being presented with me. Uh, and I need to remind myself that like, I'm in this for the long haul, like, and this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. And in order for it to be sustainable, I have to, I have to tone it down. Like I can't just be ultramanning it all the time because mm -hmm. I will, you know, I'll flame out or I'll burn out. Um, so making sure that I make time for play and enjoyment, I think is crucial and critical in that equation as well. So I want to make sure that people check out your book and first of all, your podcast, virtual podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to, I want to make sure to, we're going to link up the two books that you have, Finding Ultra and The Plant Power Way. Is that cool. right? Awesome. Yeah. And uh, we'll make sure that we can get some more information about that. But just want to appreciate you for coming on the show and for making the time to to speak. We're in your beautiful Malibu house. Well, right now we're in your studio. Let's paint the picture. Yeah, yeah, we're in a shipping container right now mm -hmm. that I have converted and turned into an office studio. It's getting real It hot is pretty groovy, too. but it's not. Yeah, like, I like we, it. We tricked it out. Yeah. It's getting hot in here, though. God, we, turned the, we turned the AC off for the audio, but. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, okay. yeah, that's why it's hot in here. But anyway, well, honor and a pleasure, man. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, yeah. It. So we usually end it off with the podcast with one small actionable challenge that we can give to the listeners here today. So once they're done, or even now, they can go out and take that action, whether they're on the go, or whether they're at home listening. What is that one small actionable thing they can do to, to live a more healthier life, to live a more energetic life, to live an, a life that is, you know, hopefully a resemblance of what you're up to right now? Mm -hmm. I like that question because I think we don't appreciate enough that change really happens moment to moment. You know, it's the small, tiny little things that we do consistently that really make or break us, not the big breakthrough moments. It's like, what are you doing right now? What are you doing in five minutes from now? What choices are you making? And the ability to uh, maximize that opportunity and that awareness comes from mindfulness and so, you know, and meditation and practices like that. But I think a mantra that I, that I use quite frequently that, that works quite well in, in, in kind of triggering that remembrance is to say that Mood follows action. So when you're butting up against some resistance, like, oh, I don't want to do that thing, or I got to call that guy back, or, you know, I told my buddy I'd meet him to go jogging, or whatever it is that, like, you don't feel like doing, that you tell yourself, well, I'll do that when I feel better, or mm -hmm. tomorrow I'll do that. Understand that mood follows action. The way to change your mental and emotional state is to take the action first, not wait for the emotional state to change and then take the action. So whatever you're waiting on, take that action and then move yeah. and follow. Turn the brain off, flick the switch in your thinking brain, become the observer of your thoughts. Don't over identify with those thoughts. Turn it off, take the action irrespective of how you feel about it, and then evaluate your emotional state in the aftermath. And I think you'll be surprised. Ritual, everyone. Thanks so much for being on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Amazing. Cool. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.